Hey, welcome to episode number 234 of More Than Bread. We are making our way through Colossians, a book that is passionately and sweetly obsessed with the worth of Christ. And we keep coming back to this idea that there's more than I can see, especially when it comes to Jesus. There's there's more of Jesus and more to Jesus and more with Jesus than we could ever see. In, in Paul's personal world, in his soul, all of everything is all about Jesus. No one greater than Christ. Remember those words he wrote back in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, but whatever things were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider, I consider them garbage compared to Christ, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I hope you can hear the passion in those words. Man, Paul had one holy passion, one greater than obsession. One thought filled his mind all the time, and it wasn't the economy or the NFL draft. It wasn't a bigger house or a greater ministry. He wanted to know Jesus, nothing greater than knowing Christ. More than anything else, the goal of this podcast is that our hearts for Christ would, would I don't know, would grow to the point that our passion for Jesus threatens to consume us. So we're moving forward in Colossians 1. I, I love Colossians, and in this episode, we'll focus on verses 13 through 20. I'm reading from the New International Version, so give him your ears. Give the Spirit of God, breathing life through the Word of God, give those ears to Jesus, because Really, the scripture is the most important part. Here's what Paul writes. For he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things, all things, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. The word all is all over the place in these these verses. He is before all things, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He's rescued us, this Jesus. He he dove deep into the mess of our world with immeasurable love and rescued us from darkness and brought us into light. He's forgiven us, forgiving us, redeeming our past and pointing us towards a future full of light. He is the image of the invisible God. Want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. He's he's not a mere teacher or prophet. He's the very image of the invisible God, supreme, sovereign creator. The grand tapestry of the universe of all creation is woven by his hands, and we are, you and I, are part of his divine design. And not only creator, but head of the church, reconciling the world to the Father, the ultimate act of love on the cross. It is so, so good. One of the things I love about going to Myanmar is the stories, like the story of Mint Shui. I shared this story probably about 20 plus episodes ago, but my friend Jorn was just back in Myanmar. And I find myself thinking a lot about my friends there and all that Jesus is doing in the midst of such difficulty. 
I mean, the Burmese people are one of the largest unreached people groups in the world. They're going through military rebellion and violence, and, and the economy is so difficult. The average income right now is less than, than a couple bucks a day. The, the organization Open Door ranks them top 15 for the persecution of Christians. But around Christmas time, the government seems to relax a little while. So the, the orphanages and ICTS, our school, will go around and do Christmas outreach. They invite a village onto their ground, or they go into the village and they put on a Christmas service, maybe a dance. We, we had all sorts of Facebook videos from all the Christmas outreaches and celebrations that took place this year. Someone will usually preach about Jesus, and then they'll feed him because they're feeding them. They might get well over a 1,000 people at a Christmas outreach, hundreds and hundreds of people. During the last decade, Calvary has helped fund many of those outreach events. So one of the, the special ones to me is about 15 years ago, Agape chose two different villages to go into for their Christmas outreach. They came to the first village the night before, but that night, Buddhist monks in the village rounded up the people. They came and surrounded the home they were staying in and began throwing rocks at the walls. And our team, our friends in Myanmar decided that probably meant they should leave. So they left early in the morning before it was light, and they went to the second village, which was more receptive to Jesus, to their message, to them. So they proceeded to do their Christmas outreach. After Joseph told the people about Jesus and the story of Christmas, he was having conversation with one of the men. His name was Mint Shui, a former Buddhist monk. His sons were in training to be monks, and while he was now working for a general in the army overseeing his fish pond. So Mint Shui was, was talking to Joseph and asking him about Jesus and, and prayer. And he told Joseph he had a pain in his arm that was so bad that he couldn't fish. He, he looked at Joseph and asked, do you think Jesus could heal me? Joseph said yes. And he gathered the team around them and they began to pray. But Mint Shui wasn't healed. So he went away. But that night he woke at about three in the morning. He had this vision of a bright light coming down through his house, covering his head and his arm. And when he woke up, his arm was healed. That very night, one of his sons was sleeping on the edge of a field miles and miles away. He'd worked in the field during the day and slept, slept on the edge of the field at night. And that night, his son had a dream of a cross with a light coming from it. He, he didn't know that Joseph's team was in his father's village. When he came home, he told his father about his dream. His father told his son about his vision and his healing. And the whole family decided, you know what? That there must be something to this Jesus. But when Joseph explained to them the, the commitment of baptism, of salvation, they weren't willing or ready to do that. So Joseph invited them to come to the pastor's conference after Christmas. Come and listen to the pastor talk about Jesus. At the end of the first day, I was there. I was one of the first times that I went to Myanmar, Joseph asked them if they were ready to be baptized. No, we, we want to hear more. At the end of the second day, Joseph asked them if they were ready to be baptized. No, we, we need to think more about this Jesus. On the last day, Minshui came to Joseph and said, we believe in Jesus and we want to be baptized. And after that, he, he brought out his robes. I still have them in my office, the robes of a Buddhist monk, his robes and his son robes and, and his begging bowl. And he gave them to me and he asked me to bring them back so that everyone could see that Jesus has the power to change the heart of a Buddhist monk. And that Sunday, I had the honor of baptizing Minshui, his wife and his four sons. That story has continued. 
Men Shui became a missionary to his own neighbors. And, and in fact, a few Christmases ago, the last time, one of the last times we were in Myanmar, our team was with Men Shui in a village participating in a Christmas outreach to almost 1,500 people. We fed them and gave out clothes and shared about Jesus. And, and eight people decided to follow Jesus that day. We baptized them and 25 others a few days later. Why? Because one day a man named Men Shui said yes to Jesus. He said, Jesus, I believe that you are the one. And I can't think of anything more important than answering the question that John the Baptist asked of Jesus about 2,000 years ago. Are you the one? You know, John was Jesus' cousin. He was called by some the baptizer, but he knew that his calling was to prepare the way for Jesus. John should have known that Jesus was the one. One day, while still in his mother's womb, his mother came close to Mary, pregnant with Jesus in her womb. And when he got close, John jumped inside of his mother's womb. He probably didn't remember that, but I'm sure he was told the story. The day that John baptized Jesus, John called out to the people, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there was still a day when John asked the question, Jesus, are you the one? It says in Matthew 11, verses 1 through 3, it gives this vignette. When Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went off teaching and preaching in towns throughout the country. And John the Baptist, who was now in prison, heard about all the things that Jesus, the Messiah, was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah we've been waiting for? Or should we keep looking? Are you really the one? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the one? Or do we still need to keep looking? Paul made it really clear in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is above all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. You know, we may be amazed, I'm amazed by the visions and the dreams and the healing that led Mint Shui to Christ, but all of, all of heaven was amazed. All of heaven rejoiced when he and his family simply said, we believe in Jesus. Jesus, you are the one. And, and you got to understand, please hear me again. I know some of you have heard this so many times, but it needs to sink in and saturate our souls if he really is the one, if he really is who he claimed to be then he is the single most significant person who ever lived. He is preeminent in everything. The, the word preeminence is the Greek word proteo. It, it means to be first in rank and in influence and in importance. Surpassing all others, Jesus is first in everything. He is unequaled, without parallel, unmatched, beyond compare, second to none. He is preeminent in everything. In the next few episodes, you'll hear me use those phrases. There's nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Nothing more in value than Christ, for he is nothing less than God. And nothing else can bring us life. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. He's the image of the invisible God, the, the firstborn of all creation. And I, I just, I'm, I'm almost praying in my soul as I say these words, just saying, Jesus, Spirit of God, would you make this so real to us that Jesus is the one that when we look at Christ, we see the face of God. When Paul talks about Jesus being the image of God, he uses a very specific word. When we hear image, we often think copy, like not the real thing, but Paul uses 
the, the word Paul uses for image, it actually means manifestation. Like Jesus is the making known of God. Jesus is the manifestation of God. Jesus is God showing up. Later, Paul says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. When you see the face of Jesus, you see the face of God. When the Bible scholar N.T. Wright was asked what he would tell his kids on his deathbed, he said that he hoped his final breath would form the words, look at Jesus. And he explained why he said the person walking out of the pages of the gospel to meet us is central and irreplaceable, always a surprise. Never think that you have Jesus in your back pocket. He's always coming at us from different angles. But if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what courage is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're part of the drama that has him as the central character. So just stop for a moment and ask yourself, what do you see when you look at Jesus? What do I see when I look at Jesus? I see a man who went out of his way to love people in the margins of life. I see tough love mixed with amazing grace and and a deep impatience with those who loved religion more than they loved people. I I see deep peace, non-anxious presence mixed with an uncontainable passion for his purpose. Eyes that saw the invisible people, unhurried joy, sacrificial love. When I look at Jesus, I see the boldness to call us to give our lives to him, and I see the courage to give his for us. I see the power to change our world. So many, too many of us hold to to distorted caricatures of God. But what if when you see Jesus in the gospels, you've seen the face of the invisible God? You begin to realize that there's nothing more, that, that he is preeminent. There's nothing more in creation. I mean, listen again to Paul's words, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him. All things were created for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. All things were created by him and for him, everything by him and for him. I mean, think about a part of creation that you particularly love. For me, it's fall colors in Pennsylvania. Maybe for you it's the ocean or a mountain vista or the 1,300 species of butterflies found in Peru's Manu National Park or or the colors of the fish in Hawaii, all created by him. Without him, there's nothing. But not only was it created by him, it was created for him. Even Even if we did not exist or if there was some part of creation that no human would ever see, creation would still fulfill its purpose because it's for him. Every star that we will never reach, whose light we will never see, it's okay. Because it's all created for him, all by him and for him. And we haven't even gotten to things like gravity, electricity, physics. In fact, when it comes to physics, Paul says that in Christ, all things hold together. Everything is held together in him. He is the quantum physics principle. Gravitational forces, the force that holds the nucleus of an atom together without Christ, creation goes back to chaos. There's nothing greater than Christ. Christ is the treasure of Christianity. I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but if it's not to catch a glimpse of Christ, then you're missing the most important thing. He is the head of the body, 
the beginning of life, in everything, he's not just prominent, he's preeminent. He's not just sufficient, he's sovereign. He's not just someone, he's the one. I love how Max Lucado describes Jesus. He, he writes, forget MVP, he's the entire league. Head of the parade, hardly. No one else shares the street. Who comes close? Humanity's best and brightest fade like dime store rubies next to him. Dismiss him? We can't. Resist him? Equally difficult. A savior found by millions to be irresistible. Nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. The reward of Christianity is Christ. Do you journey to the Grand Canyon for a souvenir t-shirt or the snow globe with snowflakes that fall when you shake it? No, the reward of the Grand Canyon is the Grand Canyon, the wide-eyed realization that you're part of something ancient, splendid, powerful, and greater than you. The cachet of Christianity is Christ. Not money in the bank or a car in the garage or a healthy body or better self-image. The Fort Knox of faith is Christ, fellowship with him, walking with him, pondering him, exploring him. The heart-stopping realization that in him, in him, you are part of something ancient, endless, unstoppable, and even unfathomable. And that he who can dig the Grand Canyon with his pinky thinks that you're worth his death on Roman timber. Christ is the reward of Christianity. Listen, Christ is enough for you, enough for your neighborhood, your workplace, your campus, your friends. You will not face anything in your life that he cannot handle. No matter what you step into or are stepping into or stepping out of right now, the cosmic Christ, creator of all things, sovereign king of the universe, digger of canyons and redeemer of timber, he is enough for whatever you face. He's not just prominent, he's preeminent. He's not just sufficient, he's sovereign. He's not just someone, he's the only one. And he's inviting you to go on a rescue mission with him for the people around you. For he has rescued us, Paul says. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much for your great grace. Jesus, thank you that you are preeminent, that you are sovereign, that you are more than enough, that you are the treasure of Christianity and and you offer yourself to us. You are what our souls thirst for. You don't have what will satisfy our thirst. You are who we need to satisfy our thirst. And so, Jesus, I pray that you just open our eyes a little bit more to the reality of of the wonder and the greatness, the awesomeness of who you are, that you are enough for whatever we're stepping into as we finish this episode. You are enough. You are more than enough. And we're so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for how you are at work in and around and through each one of us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.